Good morning. I am so glad to join with each of you this morning, this chilly February morning, as we come together to praise our great God. Please stand and join me in the call to worship. Let us sing of the Lord's great love forever. Let us declare that God's love stands forever. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Love and faithfulness go before him. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we ask that you would speak into each of our hearts this morning and help us to be open to receive all that you have to teach us about your great sacrifice and your great love. Amen. Before you're seated, take a moment, share a word of greeting, a word of peace with those who are here in worship today.
It is great to see you as we gather for worship today. just want to highlight a few things in the life of the church. Uh, you'll notice that on Wednesday nights, we do not have children's ministries because of the break at the college. And I'll be hosting a membership class tomorrow night at 6.30. We'll be meeting in room 105, which is across the hall from the church library uh, in the Christian Education Building. If you have not indicated to me that you're coming or interested in coming and you plan to come, please let me know either today or early tomorrow so we can have materials ready for you. And next Sunday morning, we continue in the second Sunday of Lent, and we will be uh, worshiping together at 820, 940, and 11. There are, as always, a number of prayer concerns that are in the bulletin, things that are connected to us here as well as things around the world. We certainly want to pray for the team uh, from our congregation that is out in South Dakota this week. Pray for their ministry and that God will use them and work in their lives as they spend time there on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And also, I uh, wanted to mention that Dick Farwell died yesterday morning. Uh, Dick's a longtime member of this congregation. His uh, service will be next Sunday at 2 o'clock at the Friendship United Methodist Church. So I just want to make, that, uh, make you aware of that, his service next Sunday at 2 o'clock at the Friendship United Methodist Church.
Our Old Testament scripture reading comes from the prophet Jeremiah. And we'll read beginning of verse 1 through verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord from the prophet. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Even their children remember their altars and Asherah poles beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. My mountain and the land and your wealth and all your treasures I will give away as plunder, together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in humanity, who depends on flesh for strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Be like a bush in the wastelands, will not see prosperity when it comes, will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. To reward people according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs that did not lay, are the ones who gain riches by unjust means. When his life is half gone, they will desert him. In the end, will prove to be fools. A glorious throne exalted from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel... All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. They keep saying to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. I have not run away from being your shepherd. You know I have not despised the day of despair. What passes my lips is open before you. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to stand and join in singing the glory of Patri as the ushers come to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Father, we praise you 
We sing glory to you because you are good and merciful. We pray that you will receive these offerings that are our response to your goodness and your mercy in our lives and in our world. Amen. Please be seated. We have the opportunity now to pray together. If you would like to use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Heavenly Father, we come today because you have called us. We do not come to prayer trying to convince you to love us or to care about our needs, to be interested in our lives. 
because we know that you care more about us than anyone could care. And you're more interested in our lives than anyone could ever be interested. So we come today in confidence, knowing that you hear us and that you are at work. Father, we lay out before you the burdens and the concerns in each of our lives. There are relationships that aren't quite what they ought to be. There are those among us who are dealing with broken bodies and hearts. There is much grief and pain that we face. And today we ask for your healing in every circumstance. Father, we pray for for others around us who are going through difficult circumstances. And we ask that your grace would come to bear so fully on their lives. We pray that you will that you will bring healing to them and comfort to them and direction and guidance and strength for every difficulty that life brings. Lord, we cannot come together without acknowledging that we are part of this great world that you have created. And the burdens and the needs in our hearts reach out to this world. We see the things happening in Syria and in Afghanistan and in so many other places of the world where violence is the norm. We ask that you would bring peace. We pray that you will raise up your people in strength and power to be a beacon of light in the midst of the great darkness of this world. And because of you in them, people will be drawn to your light. Father, as we make our way through this Lenten pilgrimage, continue to teach us. Give us courage to live as you direct us. Prepare our hearts to remember and to engage the death of Christ that we might celebrate and engage the resurrection of Christ. Father, thank you again for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your love poured out to us through your Son. It is in his name that we offer this prayer. Remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, which now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Our New Testament reading is found in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. Please stand with me for the gospel reading. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. Have you ever noticed that you don't run into many people who name their children Judas? There's something about that name that just is connected to everything that is the opposite of what we hope our children will be. Now, you know, history is replete with all kinds of people who have betrayed others, been traitors. And, uh, and you can find lists of these people on the Internet and they'll, you know, they'll talk to you about you know, various people and from whatever country you're in. The, you know, the, the traitors go higher or lower depending on the, betraying your country. In this country, we know we probably think of Benedict Arnold as the guy that, you know, we, we think is a, the synonym for traitor. But in every one of those lists of historic people who have betrayed their country, their comrades, even their own families, number one on all of those historic lists is Judas Iscariot. And we have come to, to so identify Judas with betrayal that the very name conjures up those images for us and creates an atmosphere where we don't want to put that on our children. And when we come to Luke 22, he talks to us about Judas's betrayal of Jesus. You can't really understand Luke 22 until you understand the context, which of course includes the whole book, but at least to go back to chapter 19 where we find the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. Up to this point, Jesus has spent very little time in Jerusalem. And his, his reason for that, he says, is because his time has not come yet. Jerusalem's the hotbed of political, revolutionary activity, and it's not, he's not ready to get into all of that stuff yet. And so appearances he makes are very brief and then he's back out. But when, it comes, when he comes to Palm Sunday, he says to his disciples as they make their way to Jerusalem, my time has now come. And he, walks into, he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and is praised by the people and the religious leaders are upset with them and he rebukes them. And then he goes to the temple and clears it out and that doesn't set too well with them. And they want to engage him in arguments and he embarrasses them again and again and he tells parables that condemn them. And it's no wonder that they are ready to get him. It's always seemed ironic to me that the the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders are plotting murder. And yet here they are. And Jesus knows that. And I suspect the disciples know that. And certainly Judas Knows that. It's interesting to me that Judas isn't approached by the religious people. They don't pick up some kind of traitor vibe in him and say, yeah, let's take him. He's probably the one we're looking for. Luke tells us that Judas goes to them. And the question in our minds is why? Why why does Judas go to the religious leaders what is it? What is it in his heart? What's going on in his life that would, would cause him to make that decision? Well, Luke's brief explanation is Satan entered him. 
And of course, all the evil in the world is about what Satan is doing. Satan is always underlying all of the evil that goes on in the world. And certainly he is the one that prompts Judas to do this. But the reality is Satan cannot enter Judas unless Judas allows him to do so. Unless Judas makes the decision to want that to happen. So the next step is, what is it that Satan uses to convince Judas to take this step? There are all kinds of theories about that. One, of, one theory is that it's an ideological decision. That um, Judas is, is, like what the other disciples believes, that Jesus is going to bring the kingdom on earth, on earth. And he's going, to, he's going to set up his kingdom here. And his, the main point of that, he's going to destroy the Romans and he's going to set up Israel as a nation like it was once again in its glory days. The disciples think that even after the resurrection. In Acts 1.6, they, they say to Jesus, are you going to now restore your kingdom here on earth? And if they are still wrestling with that after the resurrection, you know they're wrestling with it before the crucifixion. And Judas is thinking Jesus is going to come in and he's going to take out the Romans and set up Israel as a kingdom. And, but he's not going fast enough. He's not doing it the right way. And so Judas prompts him. I guess in his mind, he might be thinking, if Jesus gets arrested, he's going to back him against the wall and he's going to fight. It might be that Judas is just disillusioned with Jesus. He's had enough. You know, what he thinks Jesus is going to do, what he thought Jesus was all about, he's not. And it's evident to him that Jesus is not going to do the things that he wants him to do. And he's thinking to himself, Jesus, you cannot defeat Rome by love. You can't defeat Rome by turning the other cheek. This is not going to work. And he becomes so disillusioned and so upset with Jesus that it's an act of vengeance on Jesus. It might be something just as simple as money. We know Judas has an issue with money. John tells us in his gospel that before they get to Jerusalem, a woman comes to Jesus and breaks a jar of expensive perfume and pours it over him, ointment. And Judas is upset about it. He says, we should have taken that. It's such a waste. We could have sold that and gotten a year's wages out of it and given the money to the poor. And John's editorial comment is, Judas really doesn't care about the poor. He just wants the money going to the treasury because he's the treasurer and he's been dipping into the till. When Judas comes to the religious leaders, they offer him, we know they offer him 30 pieces of silver. The reality is it doesn't really matter why Judas does this. Because what we do know is that somewhere in his spirit, he has decided that the way of self is better than the way of Jesus. That the things of this earth are more important to him than the things of Jesus. That the means to bringing about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven is going to be accomplished best through his ideas, not through Jesus's. And so he ends up betraying his friend. And Luke wants us to know that point clearly. He says in verse 3, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. But you know, you really, you can't be betrayed by an enemy. That's what they're supposed, they're supposed to treat you bad. But a friend, 
That's who can betray you. Now, as they sit around the table and Jesus has spread out, the, has given the food and, the, and the, uh, the wine and he's talked to them about what we call, you know, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And, and he says to them, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples look at each other and say, who's going to do that? NIV says they question among themselves, which of them would do such a thing? And the New Living Translation has a, a similar thing. that Which of them would, would really do that to Jesus? And the reality is that the, the gospel writers seem to be indicating to us that the answer is any of them. Because if what motivates Judas is the desire for self above Jesus, that's an issue that every single one of those disciples around that table is dealing with. And the scary part of that is that that's an issue that every one of us is dealing with too. And the reality when we ask who in the world would betray Jesus, if we're honest, we have to look deep into our souls and realize that every one of us is susceptible to turning on Jesus. That's a hard thing for us to, to grasp and to get hold of because we've so conditioned ourselves to say, no, that could never happen. And granted, I'm not necessarily saying that we would sell out Jesus to the cross like Judas did. And there are certainly, there are certainly kinds and types of sins that, that are different than other sins. You know, in his book, uh, Death on a Friday Afternoon, Richard John Newhouse talks about the, the moral monsters of history. Hitler, Mao, Stalin, mass murderers. And, and he talks about how you know, they are, they're different. And in a real way, they are not us and we are not them. And, and justice requires different ways of handling their, the things that they have done and the things that we do. But then he goes on to say that the honesty is the civility and the complexity alert us to the ways in which their crimes find Find a place in our hearts. And there is, there is something of the susceptibility of evil and sin in every one of us. Now our mantra is, I would never do that. I would never do that. Judas doesn't do this. All of a sudden one day he's a staunch follower of Jesus and the next day he betrays him. It's a gradual decision making that gets him to that place. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful. It's deceitful above all things. Who, who can understand it? Newhouse goes on to, to talk about the cross. And, and he says that knowing myself and knowing the things that I do and I don't do, I don't quite understand all of it, but I've come to realize that when I... Think about Jesus on the cross. I have, to, I have to acknowledge that I was there too. And not just there standing and watching, but wielding the whip and driving the nails and thrusting the spear and putting the silver coins in my pocket. And we ask, how, how, could, how could we... Betray Jesus. How, how, why, how could we ever do that? And of course the answer is that we betray each other all the time. 
You know, we live in a society in which we have, cre- we have had to create ways to overcome all the things that we do to betray each other. This, this sort of idea of mistrust is built into our culture. This came to me a number of years ago when we were, we were building our house. And, you know, Cindy and I had, had lived in parsonages before being here. And we were, our parents were both pastors, so they lived in parsonages. And so this is the first time for us. And we were very naive, didn't know a lot about what to do. And a number of you helped us. We appreciate that. Uh, we were meeting with the banker, getting things lined up and, you know, all the things you have to do about the loan, loan officer and all this stuff. And, and we had met with her five or six times, had a good relationship with her, becoming friends with her. And, and she said to us one day, so who are you going to use as, as a lawyer, legal counsel for the closing when we sign all the papers? And I don't know if I said this to her or not. I probably didn't. But I remember thinking this in my mind. Why would I need a lawyer? I mean, are you going to put things in the contract that you're not telling me about? Are you going to try to trick me? Are you going to deceive me? Uh, I can't just trust you to say, here's what we're going to do, and here's what I'm going to do, and we'll agree on that. And we'll sign the papers. Why, why do I need a lawyer to look over everything? And I probably didn't say that because it would have started a not nice conversation probably, but that's the kind of culture in which we live. We live, we live in a culture that says we can't trust each other. And why is that? Because we betray each other all the time. And granted, you know, we, we categorize sins and, and that's, that's okay. You know, it's good that none of us are trafficking in human beings or, you know, or mass murderers or trying to carry a bomb onto a plane or suborning perjury or, you know, taking down... You know, multinational companies. And for something in us wants to say, if I'm not doing those heinous things, then I'm not that bad. But the reality is, we gossip, we are jealous and envious, and we say things to each other that are hurtful, and when we say it, we mean to hurt each other. And we are divisive. And we stretch the truth to protect ourselves. And sometimes we fudge on our taxes. We do all kinds of things to betray one another. And the scriptures tell us that the way we treat each other is the way we treat God. And we live in this world in which we try to minimize our sin and make ourselves feel better. But the reality is we all are susceptible to sin. We try to deny that. And again, society trains us that too. What does the insurance company tell you? If you have an automobile accident, two of the first things you do, call the police and admit nothing. Right? Because if you admit something, you're going to be held liable for it. And something in our minds tells us that even with God, if we don't admit it, we're not going to be held responsible for it. And something in us wants to believe that we sort of, I think in the church, we don't help this because we set the, send the message that we sort of outgrow sin. You know, the, part of our tradition in talking about sanctification and holiness and things is that we've, we've sent a subtle message that we outgrow needing to deal with sin. 
That when you're really mature, then you just sort of put sin on the back burner. You don't even have to think about it anymore. And it creates an atmosphere in the church where we don't want to talk about it. Because the reality is we all know that we still wrestle with it. But if the, if the image we're supposed to portray is that we don't wrestle with it, then how do you talk about it? And I've come to the conclusion that what we need to do is to have sort of a 12-step mindset. When we come together and worship every Sunday, we all stand up and say, Hi, I'm Wes and I'm a sinner. And not just that I used to sin and now I don't deal with that anymore, but I still wrestle with sin. And I'm still susceptible to turning my back on the ways of God. I'm still, I still wrestle with wanting to go my own way instead of God's way. I think that's what Christ really was intending for the church to be. To acknowledge our sin. To admit the truth. Because what I'm discovering is that until, until we acknowledge our susceptibility to evil, we can never really experience the power of the cross. In his first epistle, the Apostle John writes these words. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then he goes back. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. See, if we, if we say, I don't wrestle with sin, I'm really past that. Any sin I have, it's, just, it's really pretty minuscule. If we think we're past that, that's not a sign of maturity. That's a sign that we're calling God a liar. Because Christ comes into this world and goes to the cross because we sin. And we couldn't do anything about our sin. And so he does something about it. And if we say, I don't mess with, sin's not a part of my life anymore. I don't have to worry about sin. I don't think about sin. Sin's not, I don't, I'm not susceptible to sin. We're in essence saying, I don't need the cross. But God has told us over and over again, we can't survive without the cross. And in essence, we're calling him a liar. You see, this passage is not declaring, be as much like Jesus as you can. This passage is declaring, you do realize how much like Judas you are. You know, the, the passage isn't saying, when people turn on you, you ought to forgive them, even though we should do that. This passage is saying, unless you will acknowledge how often you turn on Christ, you can never know his forgiveness. Because it's only as we acknowledge our sin that we embrace the cross. Because Jesus didn't come to die because we're just a little bit bad. It just needs a little bit of a nudge to get us into the good category. He came and died because we are sinful, evil people without him. The heart is deceitful. And that's why Jesus comes and dies on the cross. And we hear that and we're thinking, all right, if I acknowledge it, it's just so overwhelming. And that's why we turn back to the cross. Because when we feel a sense of despair about our sinfulness, that's when we realize that the cross meets us with love and forgiveness.
Matthew 27 tells the story of Judas in a little more detail than Luke gives us. And Matthew says that at some point Judas realizes what he's done. And the shame and the guilt and the remorse of that are so heavy upon him that he takes his own life. And what a great tragedy it is, not only that he betrayed Jesus, but that he then ended his life and that he wasn't able to hear the words of Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And those are words directed not just at the Roman soldiers, not just at Pilate, not just at the religious leaders, but also at Judas. Because if Judas can't be forgiven, then the cross is a sham. If Judas isn't, wouldn't, isn't offered forgiveness, the cross is a sham. And you and I, those words are spoken to us too. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And even though it was our sin that made the cross necessary, it is the cross that is the remedy and the solution to our sin. In John's description of the Last Supper, he tells us that when Jesus and his disciples enter the the upper room and they get settled, that Jesus takes out a towel and a basin and he goes around and begins to wash the feet of every one of the disciples. And he comes to Peter and Peter says, Oh, no, no, Lord, I don't want you washing my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, You don't have any place with me. And it strikes me that that's an apt analogy to what we're talking about today. That if we don't come to the place of acknowledging and admitting that our hearts are dirty. And the only way they can be cleaned is by Christ. We will never understand and experience what the cross is all about. We'll never know the fullness of life and joy that God created us to know. And so as you think about your life, maybe there's a besetting sin that just keeps dogging you over and over and over again. And you want to deny it. You want to act like it's not a problem. You want to let it go. And and just in the midst of that, Hear Christ calling from the cross, Father, forgive them. And lay it at his feet. And know the joy and the power of his forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we need you. We pray that you will help us to be honest with ourselves and with you and with each other because we want to know the power of the cross. 
in our lives every day. We pray this through Christ. Amen. I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let's pray together in unison. Powerful and forgiving Lord, by enduring the pain of the cross, you have shown us the price love must pay for taking sin seriously. The nails, the crown, the humiliation, mockery, and shame you went through delivered us from the stronghold of sin and enabled us to live in the freedom only you can give. That is the reality of the cross, but not the reality of our lives. In our contentment, we forsake the transforming work of the cross in our lives. In our disobedience, we nullify the redeeming and forgiving power of the cross. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we do not take our sin as seriously as you do. For what it costs us daily is nothing in comparison to what you have already paid. Help us to reflect on the mercies of your cross. And as we do, give us the strength and grace to take up our own and follow you. Holy Father, we thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray that your divine grace will rest upon the bread, the cup of which we are about to partake. May it be food for our souls and for our hearts, for our relationships, for our decisions, every moment and element of our existence. We ask this through Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples. And he took bread. And he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. For this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples. Saying drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to distribute the elements to you in your seats and we're going to do so in silence to give us the opportunity to meditate upon our sins and to meditate upon the forgiveness of Christ for our sins. As the bread is passed down the road, tear off a piece and hold on to it until everyone is received. We will eat together.
And then we'll do the same with the cup. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. If you come today with your heart open to Christ, acknowledging your need and the desire to be forgiven and renewed and restored by His Spirit, then you are invited to come and receive these gifts. Acknowledging our sin and acknowledging God's grace. Let us eat together.
acknowledging our sin and God's wondrous grace. Let us drink together. In closing, I'd like for you to stand and join together in singing hymn number 149. Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.